I don't think there's any level of the business that you haven't been involved in or not still involved in. No, that's, it's true, Phil, from a bartender to a resort general manager. So yeah. you know, I got to run the gamut. We're not in the television business. We're in the human reaction business. Of course. We achieve reactions through our television shows. What made you so curious all your life? You're one of the most curious people I've ever met. Huh. Today is really special for me. I say special for a lot of reasons, but it's special when I get to sit down with a really good friend. And if it's a good friend that I have a lot in common with, then it's extra special. And today, that's what's happening because I've got an awful lot in common with this guy from a lot of different angles, which you'll see as we get going. I'm talking about John Taffer. Now, you may know John from Bar Rescue. I've watched every episode probably twice. (laughs) I mean, I do. I go back through them and watch them because I have moments that I wait for because it's like, wait for this, wait for it. There it is. And let me tell you some things about John that you may not know before I let him talk. He is an award-winning hospitality expert. He doesn't just roll up on bars and start giving people grief. He really comes from the position that knowledge is power. He's an entrepreneur. He's a New York Times bestselling author. He's a husband. He's a father. And he's credited largely with creating the concept for the NFL Sunday Ticket, which I'm also a big fan of. And he's been doing bar rescue since 2011. And if you don't watch it, you need to start. It needs to be one of your must-see programs that you watch. It's got heart, it's got information, it's got motivation and inspiration. It's not really about bars. It really isn't, is it? No, it's about people who hit barriers in life, sort of, Phil. Yeah. They get to a certain point and they can't go any farther. Yeah. When I first started watching it, I really enjoyed watching the physical transformation of the bars. Because the before and afters were so dramatic. I'm the kind of guy that likes to paint a black wall white. And so I like to see the progress as I go along. But it didn't take me very long to realize that the bar is just really a prop for life. And for you getting these people to stop accepting mediocrity from themselves. Yes. Whether it's the fact that they're drinking or they've just accepted that they can't do any better than they're doing, or allowing themselves to be less than they can be in the way they treat other people or their spouses. And you're doing therapy, you're doing life coaching, you're doing inspiration with these people, and it's just damn good. I'm just telling you, it's just Uh, good work. Thank you, Phil. You know, it's interesting. In reality TV, you know, television wants to pre-plan everything. And we don't. I get there. I've never been there before. I've never met these people before. You know that. So it's a challenge to find that spot. And you do it real well. Where is the point where their brain bogs down? Where is that barrier that they can't get past? And Bar Rescue is, is very much about confronting them with their own accountability. Yeah. And people don't realize, I said that I enjoyed sitting down with a good friend that I have so much in common with from a lot of different angles. And one of it is that we don't work from scripts. And the reason we don't work from scripts is because I can't know what I'm going to say or do until I hear what they have to say or do. There's no way you can script that. Now, you you can learn who they are. I know their names. I know how long they've been married or you know how long they've been in business Mm -hmm. or whatever. We know some of the background. 
But we don't know how they're going to respond yeah. until we hear it. So it's not scripted. It truly is reality. And a lot of reality shows have 10 or 12 or 15 writers. Yes. We have none. Yes, I have none either. Yeah. It's truly reactive to the situation. But isn't that what's fun for you? I know that's what's fun for me. It keeps it fresh. Of course it keeps it fresh. After hundreds of shows, and I'm starting my 192nd tonight, it's it's when you look in somebody's eyes, it's like episode one. Yeah, exactly. It starts over again every single time. Because you never know. Yeah. Now, your first job as a bar consultant was in 1978 at the Troubadour. At the Troubadour. Here right in here in LA. Yes. Yeah. My son Jordan has performed at the Troubadour, and I've been there to see other artists. The Troubadour, for people that don't know, is a truly iconic venue here in L.A. Linda Ronstadt, James yes, Taylor, Elton John. Elton John, everybody has yeah. played there. And what did you do for them back in 78? I started as a doorman, believe it or not, because I was a musician. I was a drummer. Yeah. And I moved here as a drummer to pursue a musical career. So I would play at the Troubadour at night with bands sometimes. And I was a, started as a doorman, ended up as manager. Really? Of the Troubadour? Of the Troubadour. And Doug Weston, who was alive uh -huh. then, who owned it, had this um, unbelievable ear, Phil. He would he had old reel-to-reel -reel tapes in his house, and people would send him reel-to-reel -reel tapes, and he would listen to the tape and put them on a Troubadour, and he was a star maker. Wow. Yeah, I remember reel-to-reel -reel tapes. Those Fisher <laughs> yes. decks back then. Yeah. Yes. 3M, Wallensack. Yeah, that? exactly. <laughs> but you didn't study music. You studied political science. I did in college. Were you planning to be in politics? I, or? I also studied cultural anthropology. I was fascinated by primates and societies of primates and primal instincts and what causes us to act the way we do. Well, we're kind of Cro-Magnons. So I think so. <laughs> yeah, it kind of fits. So I've always studied human behavior. I've been fascinated by it. And political science is, in so many ways, human behavior. Contingency plans, I do this, you do that, the chess game, planning ahead. So I find all that fascinating. Did you ever work much as a bartender? I did. For the first few years, I worked as a bartender uh, at Barney's Beanery down the street. Yeah. From the Troubadour. Yeah. And it's I was on the cut through from Santa Monica yeah. up to Sunset. In 1978, I'm showing my age here, yeah. I had the record in St. Patrick's Day, I poured 4200 bucks that night in 1978 on, on my own. I had the record. I'm sure it's been broken since then, but I was yeah. darn good in my day. Well, people don't know, John is really a major force in the nightclub bar business. He's a two-time winner of the Bar Operator of the Year Award. He's got this Taffer Dynamics, which is a method of management that has, has really become the gold standard in the industry because in the bar business... You just get robbed blind if you don't have systems and ways to meter and check things out. And John has just really mastered that across time. You've just overseen and facilitated synergies among nightclub and bar conventions and trade shows. I don't think there's any level of the business that you haven't been involved in or not still involved in. No, that's, it's true, Phil, from a bartender to a resort general manager. So yeah. you know, I got to run the gamut. So I am a hospitality guy. But you know, it's interesting when you take a look at our business. And I even believe that, that the shows that we do, we're not in a television business. We're in a human reaction business. Of course. We achieve reactions through our television shows. I don't think bars are there for, for food and beverages, Phil. I always believe they're there to create a reaction. And the food and beverage just fills time while you're enjoying that reaction. So I think that's really what separated me is I've always fought for that reaction, which goes back to my cultural anthropology days yeah. of primates and reactions. And, and that's still where I always seem to migrate. Well, that was your first book. 
you wrote Raise the Bar, yeah. an action-based method for maximum customer reactions. Yes. And that's what you were focused on yeah. is how do you get the customer to react? How do you get people to really have an experience that they'll go home and remember and want to replicate and come back and have that experience again? Yes. And reaction management also relates to employees. Right. How do I get the most out of my employees and such? You know, as as one, and I'm, I'm going to give you a compliment here. You know, I get to go to a lot of sound stages, Phil. I get to go on a lot of shows. When I come here, this is reaction management, the attitude of your staff, the professionalism of your staff. I've always uh, found it remarkable, the level of professionalism in this building when I compare it to other buildings that I go yeah. into in this space. It really is something. Yeah. And I think that, that you might not be using that term per se, but this building is filled with reaction management. Well, I believe I've got the best team in television, and I've always said I've got this knack for getting these gigs where somebody does all the work and I get all the credit. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen you in action. You do a little work. That's how it is here. I've had the same executive producer since day one. Yeah. I've had the same directors, same supervising producers. I've got the same seven cameramen I started with 18 years ago. You get a team going, and it's like the cameramen. They know when I'm getting ready to do something. They know if I'm getting ready to get out of my chair. Oh, he's getting ready to get up. Yeah, and so anticipate. the director doesn't even have to tell him he's getting ready to get up or he yep. go with him. They know they're already moving because yeah. we've been doing this 3,100 times, which is 20,000 guests. They know it ain't going to get by him. He's going to get up and go show them this. And so you really do get it as a well-oiled machine. You know what else is fun for me? And I've had my crew for a long time also seeing them get married and the babies and the grandchildren yeah. and seeing their lives evolve as they work with us too. It's wonderful. Yeah, it really is. My executive producer, Carla Pennington, had twins when we started. They were one. They're now sophomores in college. <laughs> unbelievable. Yeah, it is unbelievable. It truly is about building a team. Now, one of the things I like that I said, I'm going to keep repeating this about things that we have in common. People refer to me as Mr. Accountability. You are so much that way. You've even categorized excuses. You have six categories of excuses. <laughs> Fear, time, knowledge, circumstances, ego, and scarcity. Yes. Let's talk about those a little bit because okay. I like people to learn from these podcasts and then we'll talk some more about other things. But Talk about fear as a category of excuse, because you say it's based on, obviously, apprehension and anxiety. Sure. You know, I think fear comes from another place. It comes from lack of confidence, lack of resources, things like that. But when I look at fear, uh, I'm not talking about standing on a cliff, of course, right. Phil, but when I talk about fear, most of us are scared of something that millions of people have already done. So there's typically, you know, a prerequisite for doing what we're scared of doing. So fear is often uh, uh, false. It really is. And, and if it isn't challenging us physically and it doesn't endanger us, then it isn't fear. It's calculated risk. Mm -hmm. You know, monsters live in the dark. Mm. I've asked people a lot of times what scares them the most. And it's interesting. It's like if I get out of my comfort zone and say I succeed, say I decide I'm going to set a goal and I'm going to get out here and jack my income 30%. What am I going to do next month? Now they feel the pressure to keep it up. Right. And so they think, okay, if I do that, now everybody's going to expect me to keep it up. I put pressure on myself. It would be so much easier to just stay in my comfort zone and rock along. 
But then I'm miserable if I do that. That's like doing the third grade over every year. year. Right. You know, it's interesting. When I go to bars, I see that exact thing, and I have that same thought to myself. They raise the money. They open the business. They hired the people. They put everything together. But they can't get to that next step because they're scared of where do they go from there? How do they yeah. take? And But it's a false fear, Phil. It, it, yeah. it isn't based in any kind of reality. So fear, is, it's not easy to tell somebody to push it aside for sure because it's there and they feel it. But unless it's physical, to me, I always move the, them to the premise of calculated risk, not fear. And when you're in a dark room, you have nothing to calculate, do you? That's yeah. why that monster's in the dark. And it's not about being reckless. It's about taking calculated risk. Yeah. I'm not going to throw away everything and go try out for the NBA. That's reckless. I'm not going to make it in the NBA. You got to be realistic about it. I remember when I started my television show and I was sitting in the offices of the network and I told them about bar sciences, Phil. And they said, what are a couple of bar sciences? So I threw a couple out there. And the show was booked. And then on the, on the drag home, I got a TV show picked up and I got so many sciences. Can I take this to three episodes? Yeah. Can I take <laughs> yeah. it to five? Can I take it to 10? So I was worried. Okay, I got the opportunity. Yeah. Can I take it that far? And obviously I did. But in the early days, that was a huge fear that I had. But I have to put that aside and just go to work every day and, and you know let the progress happen. Many a truth is spoken jest. I can't tell you how many times I've gone home thinking, fooled him again. Yeah. <laughs> That's right, in your early days. Yeah. You're not I mean, fooling him anymore, though, are you? You really wonder. I practiced in the area of brain and central nervous system for a lot of my practice, and I would be in the room giving advice about what to do, and I would think, if they knew how little I know, they would throw me out that window, and then I realized... But it's 10 times more than anybody else right. knows. It's just that we're our own worst critic. Of course we are. And I had it's the same like thought. I, I wish I had an MRI back in the day. We didn't have them then. So we had to do functional tests and make assumptions based on whether they could feel you riding on their fingers, yeah. whether or not they could see in the upper quadrants of their visual fields and all. You had to infer from functionality. Then people would make decisions about what to do. And I'm thinking, oh, my God. I wish I had x-ray vision where I could see this. But then I realized, you know, I know more than the other two people vision in the room. still better than anybody yeah. else's. And yeah. so you feel like you're masquerading, but it's better than the 10 people next to you that are masquerading. Yeah. Something you don't know about me. I'm on a board of the Cleveland Clinic. Oh, really? And I work on neurological disorders. Is that right? So, so that, that's a passion of mine, working with Parkinson's and disorders like yeah. that. So, so I know that's a background of yours as well. Yeah, it We're is. We're making a lot of progress. It's still a passion of mine. Yeah. I read and study about it all the time. Yeah. Dr. Bradley Jabor is a good friend of mine, and he's a radiologist that really functions on the brain. He sends me articles, and we discuss them, and so he keeps me very up to speed on yeah, all of we that. We have the Lou Ruvo Center for Brain Health in Las yeah. Vegas, which is a great research facility that we're involved in. Yeah, it's world-renowned. Yeah, it is. Talk about excuse number five, which is ego. You say excuses based on internal beliefs and bad habit. Yeah. Talk about that one a little bit, because I think people will relate to that. Well, you know, I think ego is almost keeping score. Ego is based on what do I buy? What do I have? What do I do? How do I win? How do I this? How do I that? You know, our soul comes from a very different place. And, and ego, I particularly find, I'm sure you'll smile when I say this, Phil, I find people that have the biggest egos tend to have the thinnest wallets. Because mm -hmm. <laughs> the ego of, of having and not having and scorekeeping is more important to them than the accomplishment itself. Yeah. So, you know, I want that $1,000 suit or that $10,000 suit, even though I can't afford it. Yeah. Somebody else is really focused more on affording it 
rather than just having it. And I think ego gets in the way of accomplishment. You know, I've met people, a lot of them in this town, that take pride in how much they pay for something. And I'm not saying how little they paid for something, how much Much. they paid for something. They want to tell you, I paid $300,000 for this car. That's only worth 150. Exactly. And they find pleasure in that They statement. do. That's the absurdity of ego. Yeah. I would be much more proud to say I got it for 80 instead of pay 300 <laughs> for it. I'd feel like an idiot. So they put aside the accomplishment of a good deal yeah. and attach to the ego of a bad one. It makes no sense. And it's one of the biggest destroyers of business in my view. I've been in this town now for 18 years and I have found the bigger the talent, the smaller the ego. If you get some reality star in here or somebody that came in eighth on American Idol or something, they show up with a 10-person entourage, demands, they're 45 minutes late. They come in like, oh, my God, you would think it's the second coming of Christ. But then I have Stevie Wonder on. He shows up an hour early and brings donuts. Seriously, the bigger the talent the smaller the ego. They're not insecure. They know what they can do. They know who they are. I completely see the same thing. And also, who wants to work with someone with a huge ego? Yeah. I think it's because they're good people that the you know, staffs and, and, and casting people and production people get behind them. Who wants to work with a jerk? Yeah. <laughs> and I've told some of those people that came in that way, I've pulled them aside and said, listen, it may not be you. It may be your publicist or it may be your manager, but you are pissing people off so fast. It's going to ruin your career. You need to take control because I don't think you're a jerk, but everybody around you is. Right. And some listened and some didn't. And the ones that didn't are working at Home Depot in Nebraska right now. Yeah. At the end of the day, we don't want to work with people we don't like being with. Really. What made you so curious all your life? You're one of the most curious people I've ever met. Huh. You know, I'm not sure, Phil. You know, I I had a... uh, uh, um, Difficult upbringing. You know, I, I, I was raised in an affluent place in Long Island. You know, I had mm-hmm. a, a housekeeper and and my mother was really tough. My family was very, very tough on accomplishment and integrity and those kinds of things. Uh, uh, I know I got my work ethic from there. I don't know where I got my inquisitiveness from. You know, my family was very much involved in marketing, direct marketing. My grandfather invented direct marketing. He gets credit for that. So I've always been around marketing plans and creative plans. My grandfather wrote Eastern, The Wings of Man, and did Volvo commercials. So I've always been around these things, and I've always had this curiosity for human behavior. It's always bothered me. When I look at somebody do something, Phil, I've always said, Why? What causes them to do that? What causes them to act the way that they do? Mm-hmm. Now, you're the master of this. For me, it puzzles me every day. Mm-hmm. And you've talked about this before, but you don't accept anything at face value. Dig deeper. You've always given that advice, and you live that advice. I do. I do. I've been places with you where somebody has got a science or got a process, and I'm kind of taking it all in. and. You're over there behind a wall looking at some little something, figuring out how they do this or that, and you come away with a knowledge about it that most people wouldn't even think to dig into. It's interesting. I almost try to see what is the process in their mind. Yeah. So, you know, what makes them 
uh, uh, motivated when they wake up in the morning? Where are the barriers in their lives? And we all have these barriers, Phil, whether it's confidence, ego, things that get in the way with us. And, and you know, I got to try to find that. And it goes back to what you were saying earlier about reality TV. Phil, it's amazing. They put these cameras in these bars. They come a couple of days before I get there so that people get used to the cameras. And I walk in there and I have this incredibly unrealistic base lights, cameras, everything around me. And you have the same thing. The reality that we get out of people from this unreal beginning, this unreal yeah. platform is remarkable. In reality, they'd throw me out if I said these things to them. Mm -hmm. So it's the fact that they've accepted my presence gives me the license to go at them in the way that I do and challenge them to reassess themselves. You say anger is a tool. Yes. You differentiate between business anger and personal anger, and you say it's a tool to get people's attention and get them moving. What do you mean by that? You use it as a tool. I do. Talk about that. Well, you know, it's funny. The new book that I'm working on is The Power Conflict. And the premise of The Power Conflict is the world without conflict would be a terrible place. <laughs> Ideals would disappear. Our morals, we wouldn't stick up for anything. I mean, George Washington would con conflicted his whole life. Our nation wouldn't exist without conflict. So I'm not scared of conflict. So I use conflict to challenge people to tell me the truth. I call them out. And you do it too. But I call them out. Often, Phil, I'm saying something to them they've heard before. They know their place is dirty. They know they're failing. They know they're 400,000 in debt. They know their wife is ready to kill them. They know their children don't respect them. They know these things. I have to say it in a way that they really hear me this time. So I say it in front of their wife. I say it in front of their children. I put them in a place of real discomfort. And I find, Phil, in that moment of discomfort, their brain seems to open up a crack and I can walk in. I've always said this. I believe people know the truth when they hear it. If you speak the truth, whether they want to hear it or not, they know the truth when they hear it. They do. And if you're just confronting just to be confronting, it means nothing. But if you're speaking the truth, if you're a truth teller and it's something that they need to hear, they're going to hear you. Yeah. Also, I think, you know, intent is powerful. Yeah. Now, they know when they sit on your stage that your intentions are good. You truly want to help them. It might get ugly for a few minutes, but your intention is good. I think I get the same thing, Phil, and they have to trust my intention. If they trust my intention, it gives me a lot of latitude in the way I deal with them. I can confront them aggressively. I can be angry. I can say things that embarrass them and challenge them because they do trust my intention. That's the trick to great television, though, Phil, because you have a relationship with those people on stage. I have a relationship with the people in my show. Production doesn't have that relationship. You and I do. Yeah. And there's no way you can program for that. There's nope. no way you can script it. There's no way you can set it up. There's no way you can pre-program it. I've always said you can put me on the top of the Empire State Building. You can put me on a mountain in Aspen. You can put me anywhere. What people care about is what happens between the tip of my nose and the tip of their nose. It doesn't matter where we are. They care about what happens right here. That's what they're tuning in for. Early on, they wanted to go do stunts and do this there and go to some exotic setting where it was exciting. People don't care about that. They care about what I'm going to say to her when she asks a question that has to do with the outcome of her life or her kids or her relationships or whatever. And I see people that you deal with on your show, if they don't get what you have to offer, they're going out of business. Mm -hmm. They're desperate, just like people that come here. They're desperate. They got one foot in the grave and one foot on a banana peel when you get there. So 
they are motivated to listen and you've got a record of success. I look at the follow-ups. You come back, those people are doing well. Yes, they are. It's interesting. There was an article just a few weeks ago, and I won't mention the other show's names, but there were two other shows that are in the same space that I am, restaurant. One has a 28% success factor. The other is a 21. I have a 71% according to the paper, but I work it. I mean, I'm I'm like you, Phil. I'm committed to help these people before I start. It's about helping these people to me. And you you try to help people and you wind up with a great TV show in a way. I do the same. I try to help people and wind up with a good TV show in a way. If you put the show before the people, it doesn't work. Is there one that sticks out to you that was the hardest to turn around? Or is it a category of things that are hardest for you to turn? Is it based on the facility? Is it based on the personality? You know, the facilities are easy, Phil. I can always build a successful bar. You know, fixing the bar is easy. It's fixing the people that's tough. Yeah. The most difficult ones are the ones that have an inherent and bred into them lack of respect meaning they don't respect their own family they don't respect their employees they don't respect their customers they don't respect themselves that is the most difficult profile for me to ever crack through is to try to turn someone who is inherently disrespectful to respect their customers respect their employees respect themselves respect their own business that to me seems to be the the most difficult obstacle i deal with it's astounding to me that people will take that path in life where they and it's so often true of the people you work with They bet the farm. They've mortgaged their house. They've borrowed money from mom and dad. They've Mm -hmm. taken everything they have, and they bet it on this and then sabotage themselves. That's That's astounding to me. That's my justification. I woke up, how dare you take your parents' retirement? How dare you take your children and then not try? How dare you? So that's a big source of anger for me. Sometimes, Phil, when I get there, I have to have somebody to fight for. Mm-hmm. You know, and I remember the Dr. Phil show you and I did about a year ago or so. We were fighting for for the parents, not the child. When I get there, sometimes the owner is not worthy of the fight. So I got to fight for the wife or I got to fight for the husband or I got to fight for the employees. Last time, I couldn't find anyone to fight for. I fought for the community. They love the place. Yeah. But there's got to be something to fight for. We can't go into this fighting against. So, you know, I think that I'm fighting for something comes across to them. But they still fight me every step of the way. Yeah. They got to get out of their own way. But you do well at getting them out of their own way. Yeah. So what do you do for fun when you're not out there taking bars, turning them wrong side out, and the people with them? What do you do for fun? Well, you know, like you, I'm a massive dog lover. And, and, and I went through, I lost my, lost my little boy a few months ago, so I got a new one. So I'm a massive dog lover. So I will spend hours and hours every week with my dogs. That's a great source of pleasure to me. Yeah. I have a Jeep that I bought, and I'll go a four-wheeling a little bit. I'm looking at your motorcycles around here. I know you were a bike guy for a lot of years. I like going out and four-wheeling. And I really enjoy my work, Phil. You know, I read a lot about my work. I study a lot about my work, as I know you do, too. You know, we love what we do. So, so, you know, we're doing it even when people don't know it. Do you relax much? No, I'm not good at that. That's that's probably a real problem for me. And my doctors are putting some pressure on me now that, you know, I've got to learn to relax more. I've got to learn to calm down a little bit. So I bought myself a 45-foot bus. Yeah. And when I'm in this bus, I come down. Really? It actually, it does. It has an effect on me. Where do you go in it? So I, I bought a site in Palm Springs. So I bought a, a property for it in Palm Springs. But I'll take it up north. I'll take it around. I drive it myself. It's a blast. You drive it yourself? Oh, I drive that's it myself. not relaxing? Oh, I find driving relaxing. Bus? Yeah, I find it very relaxing. But I'll go park in the mountains. I'll take it up to Breckenridge. I'll take it up to Vail. I'll take it up to Aspen. I'll park it for a few days. 
Something about this disconnecting like that helps me. I'm not good at disconnecting, Phil. The phone seems to always ring for me. Yeah, that's what I mean. That's why I say you got to find something to chill, something yeah. to kick back on. Yeah. So where are you on sports? So, so uh, I'm playing golf. Play a little golf. Yeah. And, and uh, uh, but I'm not playing basketball. I know you play basketball, correct? Well, I used to, but I don't have that 42 inch vertical anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I heard you had a hell of a shot, though. Yeah, Jay maybe told you had a hell was, of a shot in your day. Maybe it was 4.2 inch vertical. But I think that's what it was. <laughs> I used to have a what I always drove them crazy. I told them I had a killer hook shot. But they couldn't stop it. That's what made him mad. It's the only <laughs> shot I had was a killer hook Jay shot. Jay told me you were a good player. Yeah, for a while. I gave it up a long time ago, though. <laughs> but I do play tennis every day. Here's what I want to know, and I'm going to be selfish on behalf of my listeners. You're such an entrepreneur. You do such a great job in turning other people around. If you were going to mentor somebody, maybe fresh out of college or had been working in a job for a while and decided, okay. I want to go out on my own. I want to start my own, whether it's a business or some endeavor. What do you think is key for young men or women that are saying, look, I don't want to spend the rest of my life in a rank and file job. I want to do something where I'm working for myself, where if I hit a home run, I get the benefit. If I don't, I don't. But I want to work for myself. I want to take that entrepreneurial spirit. I want to bet on myself. How would you mentor a young person that wanted to get out and do what you've done? Well, first of all, I would say this is the time to do it economically, right? It's sort of boom town around us right now. So this is a great time to start a business. So anybody's thinking of doing it, this is a great time to start it. Why? I think great because of the economic environment right now. The fact is consumer confidence is high. Business investment is abundant around us. Right. Uh, so it's just a good economic time to start a business. So I think... Those people who have thought of doing it that have been hesitating, I don't think there's a reason to hesitate economically at this point in time. But, you know, Phil, I find that when people say I want to go into a business, that in itself doesn't provide the passion for success. I want to hear somebody say, I want to sell widgets. I am excited mm. about widgets. I love widgets. I want to invent the world's next widget. I love to see passion. So what I typically tell people who are looking to do this is, what is it that they want to do that they want to sell? Because whatever business we have, and you and I can say this, it has to have our DNA in it. And, and you and I have been very fortunate. We've been able to build brands around our DNA. Other people need to connect themselves to what they do. When you're passionate in that kind of a way, feel you fight harder for it. So I think it isn't the desire to, to go into business for yourself that should drive someone to do it. I think it's the desire to do something that should drive someone to do it. And Phil, I believe the same is true with politics. I don't think people should go into politics because they want to be in politics. I think they should go into it because they want to accomplish something. There's something that they're passionate about, something that they believe in. That's been the basis of our success. Is your passion to help, my passion to help. So how do people take their personal passions, turn it into a business? Because when it's that exciting to them, they will find the money. Mm -hmm. When it's exciting to them, they will find a location. When it's that exciting to them, that translates to their employees. It translates to their customers. It energizes everything. So my comment to people when I mentor them is to sit with them, and I do this, Phil, to sit with them and say, where is your passion? 
What is it that you want to do? Or if you can't come up with the product, what is the result? Do you want to help people in crisis? Do you want to help people grow? Do you want to help people build? What do you want to do in life? And I think we have to focus on what makes us feel good, Phil. And you and I are blessed because we're in businesses that make us feel good every day. We're doing what we want to do. We believe in it. That's what all of these people need to find. And you can find it in anything, Phil. You can sell paper and be excited about the next color of paper. So any business is exciting if if we really believe in that that is our DNA. That is what we're meant to do. Don't you agree? Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The first page of a book never tells the full story. And those news alerts and headlines, like the ones we get on our phones, don't even scratch the surface of what the story is really all about. Stories are like people, multi-layered and complex. It takes some digging to find the truth, but when we find it, It can change our world. We like to dig. The news on Merritt Street. Essential television. I do. I think it's a matter of keeping score for a lot of people. I play tennis every day, and I can be out hitting the ball back and forth, and, you know, we hit the ball back and forth. But when we start keeping score, even if it's just we're going to hit 100 without missing, or whatever, Mm -hmm. it doesn't matter. When I start keeping score, then I start getting passionate about it. And you're better. That's currency for me. I need a hill to climb. I need something to get over. I need something that I can achieve. That's what motivates me. So just being there, getting into a business that I don't care about, like you said, selling paper. I could get passionate about selling paper if I was keeping score, because I would want to sell more paper than, than anybody's else. ever sold of course. ever. Me too. And find new ways to use paper, come up with different things, different ways, innovations. But you got to love paper to want to yeah. do that. And then you've got to f- figure out how you can be innovative with it. I see a lot of people, like my son Jordan is a musician. and Good one. It's interesting to hear him talk. He's never said a word about getting rich. He's never said a word about getting famous. He always talks about making the music. Music. That's what it is to him. He wants to make the next song better than the last one. He wants the experience of the audience to be something they won't forget. He wants to create this may you, this experience. Reaction. That they have this connection, this reaction, this relatability back and forth. And I thought originally, you know, kids, you got to monetize this some way. And (laughs) it was interesting. He was wise in saying, that'll take care of itself. If the music is great. He said, if the music is great and the connection to it is real, that will take care of itself. And he was dead right. He's just finished an 80-city tour in the U.S., and he's now finishing a leg in Europe. He's on tour with the Jonas Brothers, and 
it's been interesting to just watch him explode. And it's all from his passion. He's just passionate about it. So he had to succeed with that level of passion. And honestly, if he didn't find great success, the fact that he lived his passion would have been success enough, right? Yeah. And, you know, I've told both of my boys, I've told Jay and Jordan both many, many times. I remind them, and I try to remind myself as well, don't miss the journey. I've told Jay a hundred times over the last 18 years, when you pull onto this lot and you walk on to stage 29 or stage 30, and that red light's flashing, and you hear that audience in the background, and people are zooming around and stuff, take a minute, stop, take a breath, look around, and realize this is rarefied air. This is not something that everybody gets to do. This is not rank-and-file experience. And you don't want to miss that in a blur. You want to stop and go... Wow. Yeah, I got an email from Jay the other day, just out of the blue. It said, you know, sometimes I feel like I went to bed and woke up in a movie because he was having so much fun. Yeah. He had Erica and the kids, and yeah. they were down in Cabo and this, that, and the other. And it was one of those moments where he was taking a minute to just kind of look around and take stock of his life and his two happy kids laughing and joking. And he was just like, wow. He said, this is what you mean when you say, take it all in. And I was watching for President's Day, I was watching the HBO special, John Adams. And there's a line in the John Adams special where he says to his son, you know, I never appreciated the mundane. Yeah. And then he looks down at a little flower, a weed, really, yeah. and says, the beauty of this weed is it, and he just looks at it. And, and you're right, Phil. We sometimes don't stop and appreciate those things that actually are worthy of appreciation. I, I'm guilty of that. Sometimes I find my show frustrating. You know, I was on hiatus for a few months. I wasn't thrilled about coming back. And, and, uh, and sometimes I wow, look at what I've got. Look at what I'm doing here. Look at how special this is. It, it is special air. It is special and sometimes we lose touch with that. But we all have those moments, no matter what we do in life, that slide by. And those are the moments that should fuel our happiness. But when we miss them, we're not fueling our own happiness. It's sort of absurd. Yeah. I think you do this really well is what makes me think of it. But I try to tell people, one of the things you want to put on your list of priorities is to star in your own life. Mm. You got to star in your own life. And if you don't, who is? How crazy is it if somebody else stars in your life? life? You become a bit player in your own life? What the hell is that that about? And I don't care if you're a teacher, a plumber, a butcher, a baker, a candlestick. It doesn't matter what you do. And people can say, well, yeah, you know, Dr. Phil, it's easy for you and John to say star in your own life. You guys are stars in TV shows and stuff. It doesn't matter. You have to star in your own life. And to do that, you've got to claim that what you're doing is star worthy. You're the best at what you do. You're you the best. Feel like at, a star. Yeah, you're the best at church on Sundays in directing the kids or whatever you do. You got to star in your own life. And I think that's critical. And I 
think people miss that a lot. I think so too. It, when you present it in that way, to think that I would be a bit player in my own life is about as absurd as it gets. But you know what's interesting? Our wives are very good at that. Yeah. And when you know when you think being the wife of Dr. Phil is not an easy thing, that's a right. big shadow to stand in. Yeah. And being my wife is not the easiest thing. But yet they're not bit players in our lives. They're stars in their own. So, you know, I think how do you live your life next to a star and still be your own star is interesting. Yeah, you and I uh, what they call eat the scenery. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we do. We do. But our wives, you know, stand toe to toe with us and and they're certainly yeah. not bit players in their lives. So it's interesting. Yeah the dynamic of that whole be a star in your life. When I said, how do you mentor someone? You talked about passion. When Jay was in high school, he wouldn't read a book. He wasn't academically motivated. Was I? He, he wouldn't read a book. And then his first year in college, he wrote a number one New York Times bestseller. I sent it to his English teacher in high school, and she was like, no way. <laughs> No way. He wouldn't even read a book in high school. You know, it's interesting. I've never been to a management program in hospitality. I've never been to a seminar. I've never done anything like that. And when people say to me, gee, John, why wouldn't you quest, you know, seek out that knowledge? I actually, I believe what I'm about to say to you. You're going to think I'm crazy. I don't want to contaminate my brain. Yeah. With somebody else's thoughts. I want to go at things in an original way. So I'm not a big person on going to a seminar and learning somebody else's way of doing things. I found success finding my own way of doing it, Phil. I mean, it's worked for you. When Jay wasn't academically motivated and then wrote a book, he did an interesting thing. He interviewed a bunch of kids that were on drugs and said, why? And then he interviewed a bunch of kids that were not on drugs and said, why? And I thought the answer was going to be moral compass, that these kids just thought it was wrong, mm -hmm. these kids didn't care, and et cetera. And that was not the truth. What he found out is the kids that were on drugs said, I have no reason not to be. And the price of entry the price of admission to the drug culture is very low. You can be tall, short, fat, skinny, clean, dirty, whatever. All you have to do is drugs. And then when he asked the kids that were not on drugs, why are you not on drugs? They said, it wasn't a moral answer. They said, it just doesn't fit my plan. He said, what do you mean? He said, well, he got answers like, I want to be on the debate squad. I want to get a car. I got to have a job to get a car. I got to do a drug screen to get a job. I want to go to college. I want to play football. I got to pass a urine test for this. It mm -hmm. just doesn't fit. And these kids that weren't on drugs had a passion. They had something they wanted. And so it just didn't fit. These kids had no passion that were on drugs. They had no passion. They had nothing they were working towards. So they said, why not? And, I mean, he concluded quite rightly, if you've got a kid that doesn't have a passion in life, you need to help them find one. Sure do. Because if they've got something that drugs are incompatible with, that's what will keep them from going down that path, not you preaching and giving them all the moral lessons in the world. Appeal to their greed. Appeal to their greed. Give and them a say, better choice. That's right. Say, look, you want what you want then get it. I'm appealing to your greed. Don't do this. That's what I mean about finding passion and starring in your own life. If somebody really wants something, 
They'll go to bed at night. They'll get to sleep. They won't stay up and drink. They won't wake up hungover and operating on 50%. They won't get into drugs. They won't go do stupid stuff because they want what they want. They'll also learn. They'll take the time to educate themselves. They'll take the time to gain experiences and such. You know, I think that same motivator drives everything, Phil. It tells them what not to do, but it tells them what to do. You know, we're talking about that business owner who took his parents' retirement, right? Wipes out his parents and opens up the business. And he's making a choice. He's choosing to drink rather than rise. It's the same scenario. And, And he doesn't have a choice that he buys into other than that. And that's sad. Yeah. I've seen so many people that just don't require enough of themselves because I guess they just don't think they're worthy of it. I remember one of the shows that you did, and I forget the city, but this idiot would let these people come into the bar late at night and actually get motorcycles up on top of the tables and spin the wheels and just drove off all the decent customers. And his wife was like, what are you doing? And when you finally got him to take some dignity and self-respect and hold himself to a higher standard, everything changed. changed. He had to hold himself to a higher standard first. I'll never forget in that episode, there was a scene I was standing with the blueprints, and this guy slept on a couch in this moist, ugly basement under this bar. And all he wanted in life was a studio apartment, remember? Yeah. So I remember showing him the blueprints and saying, so if I do this, what does that mean? It's a studio apartment. If you do this, what happens? I get a studio apartment. If you do that, what happens? I get a studio apartment. <laughs> Suddenly, it started to connect. Yeah. That, oh, if I do this, I yeah. get that. Yeah. To him, that studio apartment was the biggest motivator. That was his choice. Yeah. He'd rather have that uh, uh, than the other options. And yeah. I guess it goes back to that same story about the drugs. It's, it's having that better choice that yeah. motivates you. Yeah, people have currency, and their currencies are different. I mean, for some people, it's money. For some people, it's recognition. For some people, it's a studio apartment. You don't know what will make somebody tick. But once you know that currency, you can drive them. Can I ask you a question? Yeah, you can ask me something. When you were young, did your parents give you esteem? When you were a young boy, did you have a lot of self-esteem? It's interesting. My dad died when I was 43. And at that point, I had a PhD, graduated number one in my class, made the highest score on the licensing exam that had ever been made, and stood for like 20 years, had a very successful practice. Back to scorekeeping. Yeah, had a wife and... a family, and was very successful in life by any metric, good citizen. Mm -hmm. Family man. Yeah. And uh, he died when I was 43, and never in 43 years did he ever say, I'm proud of you. I think he would say it to other people. I think he would brag on me to other people, but he never, never said it to me. And... We had a great football team in high school, never lost a game, played Division One football on a scholarship. Never said, well done, son. Never. So the answer is yes and no. No, I didn't get esteem from them, 
but I learned to give it to myself. I think I'm the same way. There comes a time where you wish you could get something from someone else and you realize they don't have it to give. They can't give you what they don't have. They don't have the selflessness. My dad was a really bad alcoholic and they just can't give you what they don't have. So you learn, I have to give myself what I wish I could get from somebody else. I have to look myself in the mirror and say, you know what? You're a good father. You're a good husband. You're a good citizen. You're a good employer. You're you're a good Christian. You're a good this. You're a good that. You have to give yourself what you wish you could get from somebody else. I went through exactly the same process. Really? Yeah. My dad died when I was two and my mom was tough. So I did not grow up with any esteem. I was called a cancer when I was a kid. So that's so, so, so I did. That's pretty rough. It's pretty rough, though. So I, I had a very rough childhood. So I grew up really going through, and I didn't realize consciously what I was doing, but I've built up that esteem on my own over the years very much. And it's interesting how we've done this very much by looking in a mirror and almost saying the same things to myself. Yeah. I am a good father. I am a good man. I yeah. do have blah, blah, blah. So there's a big lesson in this for those that don't feel they have that esteem, that weren't, yeah. it wasn't given to them by their parents. You can still get it yourself. I'm a big one for what I call continuity of ID. Continuity of identification. I look back to times in my life that people objectively would say these were not good times, but nonetheless, they were me. And I think it's important that I never lose contact with those times. I was homeless the summer before high school, and that was not a good time. But I observed myself survive and overcome that. And so I attributed to myself the ability to survive and overcome that. So Mm -hmm. I made a self-attribution like, I can do that. Built a steam. So I've never played the game of life with sweaty palms because I can do poor, so I'm not afraid of it. Right. I was poor my whole life until I started doing things on my own. But I look back to even what they now call middle school, we call junior high, Mm -hmm. uh, seventh, eighth, and ninth grade. I realize now, I didn't realize then. But I realize now that I starred in my own life then because everybody in the family has a role. And I had three sisters. I was the only boy. And we were broke as a snake. And a snake doesn't have pockets. Mm -hmm. So that's how broke we we are. (laughs) I was the entertainment for the family because I was an athlete. So in junior high, every Thursday night, we had our games because varsity high Mm -hmm. school played on Fridays. So junior high played on Thursdays. Thursdays. And it was the only thing the family could do for free. So everybody looked forward to those games. And I was a pretty good athlete, so they had something to cheer about because I could jump high and run fast. Yeah, and it was a source of pride for the family. So it was. So that was my currency. It was my currency at school because I didn't have the clothes and the social things, mm-hmm. you know, the Izod shoes and the penny loafers and things that were big at that time. But I was a good athlete, so that gave me social currency. And in my family, everybody looked forward to the Thursday night games and stuff. That was my role in the family. I starred in my life as I was just going to say, you became a star at a young age in your life. I didn't think about it then. I didn't realize what I was doing at the time. But looking back, that was my currency, and I was starring in my own life at the time. Then when I got into high school, same thing. We didn't have money, but I was... The entertainment. So I, I was always the escape for the family. I was always, they could 
take pride in me as an athlete and come to the games and everybody's patting them on the back and hey great game and people knew you in town and you yeah. had a name and so sure. so everybody has a role and you find a way to star in your own life even when mm. you may not have a lot of tools or things that you know, maybe other people have you know, it's when you were talking about mentoring early on, I was I was thinking about, you know, th- this whole premise of currency and, and being the star in your own life. And so many times people say, you know, I just don't have the steam. I don't have the self-confidence. And I tell people all the time, your parents don't have to give you that. That's yeah. something you can create on your own. You know, when you talk about mentoring, that's a lot of it, Phil. I mean, I wonder how many people are listening that have the ability to succeed, but just don't know they have that ability. Yeah and actually have more esteem than they believe they do if they would look in their mirror and tell themselves so. Yeah, and get out and get in the game and observe themselves do something and then make the attribution and say, I did that. I survived that. I accomplished that. I overcame that. You know, the way we make attributions to other people is, like, think about it. If you got somebody at your office that they're there every morning, five minutes before they're supposed to be, they put on the coffee, they turn on the lights, they're never not there. They're just like a clock, just click, 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 click. You attribute to them being responsible, reliable. You make those attributions based on what you observe them doing. That's exactly how you make your own attributions. You watch what you do. If you watch yourself shrink from a challenge, if you watch yourself cower from somebody that's intimidating you or or pushing you out of the picture, you make an attribution to yourself that you shrink in a cowardly way. If you watch yourself get out there and accomplish something, then you attribute to yourself, hey, I can do that. But you only can do that if you observe yourself doing it. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. In Bar Rescue, I put them in that stress test, which you've seen, of course, a hundred times. And I caused them to accept their own failure in that moment, Phil. Right, it's tumbling down around them. They can't escape it. And then, with a couple of days of training, putting them back in control, this slight realization: Wow, I can do this. Wow, it isn't so bad. That little glimmer of light, you know, gets me to a seventy-one percent success factor. And all of it, you know, Phil. In most cases, I wouldn't even have to remodel the darn bar. All I had to do was get them on path again and get them excited. Yeah, but you see those people stand taller. You know, when you come up with a signature cocktail, when yeah. you come up with food that's actually edible, that didn't come out of grease with Ebola in it or something, and they actually take pride in the product, you see them stand taller yeah. and they go, wow, I take pride in this bar. I take pride yeah. in people coming in and knowing I work here. It's amazing how the staff and the owners transform because they observe themselves running a place with pride. And what's interesting is you don't see that on TV, but I do, just like you do. I see in their eyes when they change. I see their body language change. I can see the confidence grow in them. Sometimes that doesn't come across on television like it should, but but, uh, uh, seeing that happen before my eyes fell over 48 hours is quite a remarkable thing. And I'm going to go back to how you started with me. It goes back to that anger. Yeah, It's confronting them because I have no time for them to change. It's confronting them and forcing them to deal with it now. And I find that that, that urgency really works to my advantage. It's a little gestalt, if you will, Phil. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, people might be walking by the TV and say, oh, there's John yelling again. If you stop for five minutes and watch what's going on, 
it's not just about yelling and confronting. It's about getting people's attention and getting them to love themselves and believe in themselves. There's so much more going on if you stop for even five minutes and watch what's going on. Yeah, that's the truth, Phil. And, and watching that transformation is what motivates me. It's incredible, Phil. The first day they're ready to throw me out, they hate me. Oh, of course. But I get that hug four days later. Yeah. And Always. that hug motivates me. I can scream yeah. louder next week because I know I'm getting that yeah. hug. Yeah, of course. Well, I've kept you a long time, but I need to keep you a couple minutes more. My pleasure. Because you need to tell me about the podcast. I'm inspired to help people, Phil, just like you are. I do it in a different way than you do, of course, because I do it in a non-textbook, non-professional way. I'm a hacker, if you will. My father used to say that, or a chicken flicker, my father used to say. But the fact of the matter is, what's most exciting to me is the personal transformation that people have. That's what inspires me more than anything, Phil. And, and when I look at my podcast, it's the same thing. What can I say to inspire people? I've done hundreds of seminars in my life. I speak all over the world, Phil, at major conventions and stuff. And I always say the same thing. I don't want to change what you do. I want to change the way you think. If I can change the way you think, I can help but change the way you do. Changing the way you think is a little ugly sometimes, Phil. I got to challenge you. I got to tell you you're wrong. I got to make you reassess yourself. Those are moments of weakness that, that moments of strength come from. My podcast is all about that. And I'd like to invite you to come on it in the next few weeks, if you would. But I will. It's trying to take the lessons that I've learned in life, Phil, and pass them on. And trying to inspire people. And I hope that each week when people listen to it, they're inspired to start that business, Phil. Seek that promotion. You know, even confront that person who's taking advantage of them. Stick up for themselves. And I'm going to use your words. Become a star in their own lives. Yeah. Well, one of the many things I like about what you do and how you do it is you put the dots real close together and you connect them with a bright red line so people can say, right, th this is what he's telling me I need to do how I need to change my thinking, what I need to require myself. And I think that's what people are going to find when they tune into that. It's on all the platforms, right? Yep. You can find it everywhere. Yep. And I'm going to have a link to it on my feed so you can, if you finish listening here, you can just click and go right to John Taffer's No Excuses. Right. We got a whole new season premiere March 12th. March which, 12th. Which is, is a big day for us. And new season of Bar Rescue premieres March 1st. 10 really? o'clock. Yes. New season. I'm doing 38 this year. 38 more. By the way, I'm starting my 192nd. I know you got a kick out of this. And in May, I'm going to shoot my 200th episode, which to you is nothing. But in my world, that's a lot of TV. Yeah, well, you take four <laughs> days to shoot them. I yeah. do two a day. Uh, so. A little, little different. Right. Yeah. So, so I'm gone 38 weeks yeah. to do 38 episodes. So now, wait a minute. Are you, the new season of Bar Rescue is March 1st. Yes. And then no excuses. March 12th. 12th, correct. Okay. I, I don't want to confuse people with that. So March 1st is the new season of Bar Rescue, and you're doing 38 this 38 year. 38 this year. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Well, congratulations, and I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. I used to do 10. First season was 10. Second season was 10. Third season was 40. Yeah. Fourth season was 52, Phil, in one year. Can you yeah. believe it? Yes, so I can. So 38 is actually a bit of a cakewalk for me. Yeah. Well, I, <laughs> when you did 10, they ran them like eight times a piece. I know they did. They so did. That's yeah. why I said I've seen a lot of them yeah. We're both on times. TV. God knows how many hours a yeah. week we're on television. A lot. But that's all right. Yep. John, congratulations on all your success. Thank you, Phil. I want to tell you that, that you have uh, played a large part. You have. You've had a big impact on me, Phil. I've learned a lot from you these past few years. I honor our friendship. 
and and you might not know it, but you're a bit of a mentor to me. I'm flattered and humbled to hear that because yeah, I, I learn a lot from you as well. And I'm going to hold you to what you said about putting me on your podcast. It's a deal. All right. Thanks, Phil. Thank you, my friend. All right. All right.